how far would you go to serve the Lord? How far would you go for the Lord? I want you to keep that question in mind as we read the passage for today. It's Philippians 2, 19 through 30. And most of this is not going to be on the screen, so I really encourage you to open up a copy of Scripture, uh, ideally a paper version. There are pew Bibles in front of you. Find Philippians. This is chapter 2. We are going to read 19 through the end of chapter 2. It says here, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it goes with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So when I ask you, how far are you willing to go for the Lord? Uh, when we talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus, and that's who this section is about, uh, for them we can see literally how far they were willing to go for the Lord and to serve him and to help Paul. Because in this section, of Paul's letter, he describes a few road trips that are made by Timothy and made by Epaphroditus, ones that they've had, ones that they are going to have. So I think to understand this and get the context of this, let's kind of back up a little bit and think about the, the situation of this letter. Why was uh, the, the letter of Philippians written again? So remember that Paul was in, uh, imprisoned. It probably wasn't a dungeon-type situation this time. He had uh, he had appealed to Rome uh, after being imprisoned in Judea for probably like two years. And as a Roman citizen, he was able to bring his trial before Caesar. And so he was sent all the way to Rome. He came there by, by ship and he has been waiting there maybe up to like two years at this point for the trial to come about to find out is he going to be released or are they going to execute him? Now, this was more of a, a house arrest situation at this time for him, although he was in chains and there were Roman guards, uh, so his freedom was, was, was limited, and this was a situation that he was in. But now the Roman kind of prison system in those days, uh, whether it was a situation like this or a dungeon situation, they did not uh, provide you the things that we would assume. I mean, prisoners these days you know, sometimes get all kinds of education and they get entertainment and a lot of different things, and three square meals a day. In those days, uh, if you were in a prison situation, 
the, the Romans did not provide you food. They did not provide you clothing. If you were sick or ill or injured, they did not provide you medicine. In a situation like Paul's, if he wanted to be under house arrest uh, somewhere, he needed to be paying for where he was staying as well also. So this required funding, and it's hard to have that. You're not working a job when you are imprisoned. So in those days, unless you had somebody that was willing to come and help you, uh, family, friends, people that are close, and sometimes really putting themselves at risk, you know, to come alongside someone that was in trouble with the law, maybe in trouble with, with Caesar, that was a risky thing to do. If you didn't have someone like that, really, well, sorry, you're out of luck. And so this is a situation Paul finds himself in. Paul had been uh, part of, you know, the, the church at Philippi and, um, you know, ministering to the, the Christians there and planting churches. And so when these Christians in the city of Philippi, which is way over in uh, kind of northern Greece, Macedonia area, they learned about this, they decided we need to help Paul. He's, he's valuable to us. We're thankful to him. He's an apostle of God. We have to help this guy. And so they made a collection. Uh, they got a large sum of money, and they were going to send it, and they did send it, to Paul to help him with all of these different things to provide for him while he was in prison. So they collected this money, but it turns out that in those days, Venmo hadn't been invented yet. Okay? So you couldn't just you know, get out of your app and send them the money. You couldn't do that. You couldn't wire it. Uh, you couldn't transfer it from your checking account. You couldn't write a check and send it in the mail. Uh, that didn't work. So how was it that you would get a large sum of money from Philippi to Rome all the way in Greece? Basically, you put the money, the cash, the coins, into a bag or bags or something like that. You found somebody trustworthy because you're giving them a lot of money and also willing and brave to do this, and you sent them on their way. That's what they did. And so Epaphroditus, who it's going to be talking about uh, in the second part of this, he was the, the trustworthy volunteer from Philippi, so he was a Philippian, who agreed to carry this sum of money uh, from the city of Philippi to Paul in Rome. But one does not simply walk into Rome. Okay, technically you do, but it was dangerous because you're walking along the way and it was, uh, there were these Roman roads or these Roman highways, uh, but there's a reason that robbers are sometimes called highwaymen, okay, because they would lay in ambush. There was a lot of dangers and this was, uh, again, it wasn't a matter of hopping into his car or a plane or something like that. Uh, it was a matter of getting onto a road and going. And we know, actually, um, with pretty good certainty, probably the route that he took. Because Philippi was on one of these really major uh, roads in the ancient world that uh, ultimately led to Rome. They say all roads lead to Rome. And Philippi was um, on what's called the Via Ignatia. Here's a picture of it. So if you were thinking, you know, four-lane superhighway, uh, that's not this. Thinking, that looks more like a path. Uh, yes. So when we talk about the roads, but it was great to have this rather than just, you know, cutting through the wilderness. And the roads in the ancient world were something that really sped up transportation were a huge thing. 
he probably walked. Horses in those days were primarily for the military. In fact, if you search the word horse in scripture, it almost always refers to military use. Uh, and, you know, other animals probably either didn't work, I and mean, there could be possibility, but probably he walked this way. And so you think, well, how far was this? Well, here is a map. Philippi is uh, right up there. So you have Greece and then kind of the, what's uh, towards Macedonia. So it's up there. So if you can see the red line there, that's the Via Ignatia. So he would have uh, walked that. He would have started heading uh, west, and he would have gone 360 miles. Okay, that's a pretty long walk. What's the longest walk you've done lately? All right, walk that uh, across uh, Greece into what's now, I think, I think it's Albania now, I think, uh, to uh, Dracium. And there he hits the Adriatic Sea. At that point, he would need to charter a boat, find a boat, and cross the Adriatic Sea. He's already gone 360 miles. It's a 90-mile trip, basically, uh, across the Adriatic uh, in an you know, ancient you know, vessel. So he would, he would cross that, and then he would get to Italy, and then he would hit a uh, Roman road. And this is a picture I found online of one of these ancient Roman roads and probably much what it looked like probably without the green garbage cans along the way, if you look carefully. <laughs> but think about it, this road was built over 2,000 years ago. I mean, just let that sink in. The Romans did a good job with this. Now, 2,000 years ago, the roads in Michigan weren't exactly... Uh, <laughs> uh, just something to think about. <laughs> so you got this road, so he would be heading on this. Uh, and so here's the map. He would... Uh, the boat or ship would come in at Sunday, and then he would travel. And now this would be another 350 miles from Basendi on the Via Appia uh, all the way up to Rome. And here it says Roma, but it's, uh, we, we would call it Rome. So again, walking this way, so a one-way trip, add up all this, it's about 800 miles that... Epaphroditus traveled to bring this gift, risking the dangers, risking robbery, risking all these different things. And he probably had some companions with him, I would guess, uh, especially being entrusted with a large amount of money. Um, It was also, you got to remember too, it's not like there was a Holiday Inn at every stop here. Uh, So this would have taken weeks to do this. Where do you stay along the way? Where do you find somewhere safe? Uh, I don't know if there's times you're sleeping alongside the road. It's not like there was, even the inns in those days were few and far between and usually pretty suspect. So if they could, they would try to find other Christians uh, that were in you know, different cities and uh, that would show them hospitality. You know, when the Bible talks about showing hospitality in the ancient world, a lot of what it meant was uh, opening your home to other Christians that are coming through, and this would be definitely a situation where they would do something like that, hopefully. But yeah, this was a long, dangerous, hard journey that he went on. So 800 miles. 800 miles at least, that's how far Timothy and Epaphroditus were willing to go to serve the Lord and to serve Paul, and the, we'll see the believers in Philippi. So we're going to look at Timothy first, and we're going to look at Epaphroditus in this passage. And one of the common themes that I see in this is the theme that both of them were selfless servants. They were servants of the Lord. They were servants of, of others. 
and just the selflessness that you'll notice looking at the profiles here of both Timothy and for Epaphroditus. So from uh, verses 19 through 24, it talks about Timothy. Timothy was a selfless servant of proven worth. So Paul says, I hope to, in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon that I may be cheered of that I too may be cheered by news of you. Uh, Timothy was a young man uh, saved during one of Paul's ministry journeys. He had been discipling him, uh, training him somewhat of an apprentice, an assistant to Paul. Uh, Later on, Paul would write two letters to him that we have, that you have in your Bible, and they're called 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Uh, So this is the same guy. And you see in verse 19 that uh, it says that, Notice again, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So at this point, when the Philippians are reading this letter, Timothy hasn't been sent, uh, but Paul is planning to send him soon. But notice that he says then that I may be cheered by news of you. So think of what this is implying. If Timothy is with him, he's going to send him. And so this means, all right, Timothy, you're going to leave Rome. You're going to travel 350 miles to Brasendi. You're going to get on a boat. You're going to travel 90 miles across over to uh, Greece here. You're going to get off the boat at Drachim. You're going to then walk uh, 300 and uh, I believe 60 miles to Philippi so you can meet with them, you can minister to them, and connect with them. And then, once you've done that, and when your time of encouraging them and finding out where they're at, I want to hear about this. So it means you're going to leave Philippi. You're going to get back on the Via Ignatia. You're going to walk 360 miles to Dracium. You're going to hop on a boat. You're going to go across the Adriatic to Brindy. You're going to come back to Italy, and you're going to get on the Via Apia, and you're going to travel 350 miles to Rome so you can connect with me and encourage me and tell me how they're doing. (laughs) So there's some road trips ahead. So it's not just 800 miles. Okay, that's one way. This is a round trip that he's sending uh, Timothy on. He's going to be going 1,600 miles uh, to minister and to do this. This takes, a, this takes selflessness in order to do this. Uh, again, this wasn't, you know, uh, get back in the Camaro, put the top down, put on the tunes, and away you go. That'd be fun, but that's not what this was like. We see here that Timothy was unique in Paul's eyes. And one of the ways he was unique and as a selfless servant was because he genuinely cared about what was best for others, not for himself. He was the kind of person that thought about what is the good of other people. He wasn't like, what's in it for me? What do I want? What do I care about? Notice again verses uh, 20 and 21. Paul says, for I have no one like him. He's saying this is rare, This is not common, even among other Christians, to have someone that has this attitude to putting other people first. As so many people, they think of themselves. They're self-centered. They think, what are my interests? What do I need? What do I want? For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned, not just on the surface, but really able to put it into action, genuinely concerned for your welfare. That means what what is actually best for the other person. And verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Remember how chapter 2 begins? 
If you were here, or well, if you weren't here, it's even better to look back at this. Paul, in the beginning of chapter 2, is talking about, he has this great part where he talks about Jesus Christ, and he lifts him up, and he has this great language of Christ coming down. But in your Bibles, move your eyes back to to chapter 4. Well, let's start with actually verse 3. And he's telling the, the Philippians in this letter, he's saying, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And then he gives an example. Who should you be like? Hey, well, who's a good example for you? Well, we have the ultimate example. Verse 4, let each of you, um, he says, look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, your mindset, your way of viewing things, your attitude, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, talking about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to or just to remain just in heaven with all his privileges and the glory and the comfort and how wonderful that was for all eternity because he was fully God. But verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the journey that Christ made to serve us. And so we see Christ here, we see Paul saying, be to the Philippians and to us through Scripture, be like Jesus. Be selfless. Don't look to your own interests, look to the interests of others. Put that first. And he talks about Christ. And now, at the end of chapter 2, he's giving Timothy and Epaphroditus, and there's reasons for him to talk about both of them, but also he's lifting these up as, these are two guys that are doing it. These are two people that are, 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 are normal human beings, okay? They're not also, you know, God as well. And they're Christians, and they are living, breathing examples of people that have sacrificially served putting the good of other people first. So in this, we see not just, okay, travel plans for Timothy and Epaphroditus, but he's giving us instructions that we are to be like Timothy and Epaphroditus ultimately because in that way, we can be like Jesus Christ. And Christian, that is God's calling for us to be like Jesus Christ. He wants to make us like him. He saved us just as we are, but now he's transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. That is his, his goal for you. That is uh, his ultimate plan, and it will be fulfilled. He's working in your heart, in your life, to do that. So we see Timothy doing this. And again, he didn't just care in the sense of, oh, I, I care a lot. You know, I have these feelings. I care for you. He actually was putting this into action. He was getting on the road and going, doing it. And that's something we need to remember, too, because it's one thing to just have intentions of caring. You know, I've said this before, but if, if I could be just judged on my good intentions, man, I would win awards. But it's not just our intentions. It's what we actually do. So think about that for all of us in our lives. What do we need to be doing for other people? And it's not just about caring and thinking, I'd love to do that, but at some point, actually doing it. At some point, taking that first step to do what God is calling us to do to put it into, into action. Now, notice in verse 21, as we keep going, he says, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. 
And you think, well, wait a second, whose interests is he talking about? Because at one point he says, he cares about the interests of others, like other people. And then he says, well, he cares about the interests of Christ. And so which is it? Does he care about Jesus or does he care about others? And the answer to that is yes. Okay? And in that, if you're thinking about it properly, uh, to care about the interests of Christ is also then going to be caring about other people because Jesus loves other people and he wants you to be working in the lives of other people for, for their good. And so by serving other people and doing what is genuinely best for them, you are fulfilling the mission of Christ. You're doing what he called us to do. So if we ever get in the mindset of, well, I just love Christ and I don't have to love people, that, that doesn't make sense. These things need to be connected and put together. Caring about the genuine good of others and caring about the interests of Christ always go hand in hand. And another reason for that is because Christ is the ultimate good of people. Anything else falls short of the ultimate. And there are great things we can do for people. There are physical needs we can meet, and there's things that we should do. But unless we're helping them to come to Christ and to know him as Savior and know him as as Lord and their treasure, the one that they find their joy in, joy, this theme that we keep seeing over and over in Philippians of joy, rejoice, we're not really doing what is ultimately best for them. So if you think about it properly in the right way, Care for Jesus Christ and care for people are going to go hand in hand. Love for God and love for others together. He cares about the interests of Jesus Christ. And there's so many ways that each of us need to think about how do we need to apply this. There are ways we need to think about this when we leave the doors of this church and through the week in our home, in our community, in our jobs, what are things that we can do that we ought to be doing for the good of other people, serving other people, meeting practical needs, but also our mission of trying to help people to connect to Jesus Christ, to receive reconciliation, help each other grow in Christ. This should also shape you know, our view of, of church. You know, if you view church as a consu- with a consumer mentality, then you're going to have this view of, well, I want to pick a church that, what does it do for me? Because the rest of the world is like that. You go to a restaurant if you enjoy the food there. You have different services that you may pay money for or engage in if you enjoy it. It's all about what is the benefit to me in this. But as we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to shift that thinking that being a church together, being a congregation brothers and sisters in Christ in a local church, it is about Jesus Christ and it's about the mission that he has given us. And the reason that we exist as a church is ultimately to bring glory to Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate thing. And if you wanted to break that down into two main components of what we do, it would be evangelism and discipleship. Helping those that don't know Christ as Savior to know Christ as Savior And then, discipleship, helping each other to grow as Christians, to become transformed more into the image of Christ, uh, to grow more where we're equipped and serving uh, Jesus, serving other people, both in the church and out in the community and in our families, in all of the different callings that we have in our life. 
So these are, that's the mission of our church. So when we think about sometimes, you know, personal preferences in, in the church, and I'm glad I get to say this right now in a, in a sense that um, we don't have huge arguments here about, oh, I think this should be painted this color, or, you know, I think, you know, this tweak of the music, or this type of thing, or, uh, you know, there's not a lot of that going on. I'm glad for that. And sometimes we have to ask when we think about, uh, you know, different things for church, uh, catch ourselves in the mindset, is this my personal preference, what I want, or are we thinking, what is best for everyone as a whole, for everyone that is here, and also those that are not here, because our mission is also to bring the message to, to other people and to help other people to, to learn and to grow and accept Christ. So sometimes when people give me their opinion on things, you know, sometimes I can tell, okay, you're giving me your personal opinion, what you would like, and there's a place for that, okay, but there's other times when I can tell this person is stepping back and it's not just thinking about their own personal preference, but they're trying to think big picture and not just about, well, how can we please the most people, but they're thinking even deeper level of what is going to help our mission in Christ, what is going to help us to, to do evangelism, what's going to help us to do discipleship, and I think the more we grow as Christians and the more if you're growing into some kind of leadership position in the church, whether it's formal or informal, the more we want to grow in that mindset that we're thinking broad, we're thinking big picture. You know, we live in a world where you can create an individual playlist, you know, and just listen to just the exact music you like. And sometimes we think that's, that all of life should be like that. Uh, you can customize your streaming video. You can customize your order at restaurants. Uh, but we need to think big picture. So Paul is talking about Timothy, saying he is someone that puts the interests of others in the interests of Christ first. And then in verse 22, he says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. I trust in the Lord shortly that I will come also in the hopes that he is going to be released from this. So Timothy was also someone of proven worth. I think one thing we need to recognize is that proven worth requires consistency. If it's just a one-time thing, if it's just here and there that we're showing worth, that we're showing, in this sense, faithfulness, it's not that we're worthy but that we're being faithful to God, that we're trustworthy, that we are uh, servants. Notice he says that he's serving like a, like a son with a father with him, that he's, that he's loyal, that he, he does what he says he's going to do, that he's committed, that he doesn't just volunteer for something and then flake out because there was something else that came up. Proven worth requires consistency. You know, sometimes we think that in order to serve uh, the Lord, you need all these talents, you need all these abilities uh, that, you know, I'm if you think, I, I don't have these different gifts and therefore, well, what am I going to do? But you know, when we look for people to raise up as, as servants and to entrust things to, well, one of the things that I look for, I look for someone that is fat. Someone that is faithful, available, and teachable. And those things are more important than a lot of different skills. If you're someone that is faithful, 
that you're going to carry on what you're doing, that you're going to fulfill your commitments, that is huge. We live in a world where there's not a lot of people like that available. I mean, that's something, too. We have so much opportunity to do things, and there's so much that we can clutter our lives with that if you don't have some space available for serving the Lord, and hopefully you're able to serve the Lord in the other callings and the other things that you're doing to an extent, but to have other space where there's things that you can be doing for the Lord, you, there needs to be availability to that. And also teachability. That you're someone that is willing to grow, willing to um, receive instruction, to receive insight. Not, a, not a, a haughty spirit or I know everything already. And so that FAT acronym, that's a great thing to, to aspire to and to be. And you know, the great thing is anyone can start being that. That doesn't take a lot of just natural skill or ability, but to be faithful, and by doing that, to become a, to seek to be a, 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 someone of proven worth, like Timothy was in the eyes of Paul. So there's Timothy, and there's also Epaphroditus, verse 25 through 30, and Paul talks about Epaphroditus here. Uh, we see that he views Epaphroditus as a selfless servant who risked his life, he put his life at risk. I mean, they both did, but we're going to see how Epaphroditus, uh, he specifically says he did this. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. So Epaphroditus had came all this way. He had given Paul this support. And now, at this point, Paul is sending Epaphroditus back. So he's going to make the return trip. He's going to be going back to them. Uh, so again, the whole thing, it's not 800 miles, it's 1,600 miles for this. I wonder, you know, t- a lot of people will name their kids Timothy. Okay, we have Tims here. We have some great Tims. But there's not a lot of Epaphrodituses, you know. I ch- did check on Facebook to see if some people are named Epaphroditus. There's some of them. Uh, but not a whole lot of them. I mean, well, why is that? Well, it is a five-syllable name, so that's something. It'd be hard to know what would you call the kid at school or at home. Uh, there's really no, like, short, you know, uh, hey, eep? I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't roll off. Epaph? The, it, the whole thing just doesn't work. Uh, but maybe also, too, the name actually means, uh, and if you look at the name, you can see it in there, uh, but it literally means honored by Aphrodite. Okay, so it's... Uh, Remember, he's from Greece. They worship these Greek gods. Aphrodite was the goddess of love, and by this meaning mostly sexual love. And so his parents, uh, he didn't come from a Christian home. You know, they were evangelized. We don't know about his parents, but, you know, he came out of a pagan background, which should also be an encouragement, you know, to you if you don't come from, uh, you know, a 15 generation of Baptists, okay, uh, that God can use anyone from any background. He can pull you out of whatever and set you on a new path for him. Uh, but he had this name, Honoring Aphrodite, and yeah, okay, maybe it's not a great name for you to name your kids. Um, Epaphroditus, not to be confused with Epaphras. There's another guy in Scripture named Epaphras, probably two different people. And therefore, this is really all we know about Epaphroditus is what Paul tells us here in uh, Philippians. Again, that he was the one that carried the gift of money from the Philippians, 800 miles to Rome, and that Paul sent him back. And when he came, he fell gravely ill in the process, 
where you see he recovered, and Paul sends him back, and he is probably the one that is, you know, carrying, you know, the letter that is uh, the letter of Philippians. So he arrives back to them, he gives them this letter, they read it in the church, and then eventually other churches say, hey, can I have a copy? And they start copying this, and it ends up in our Bibles as scripture, which it is. So, we see in here, one thing about Epaphroditus is that Epaphroditus showed his selflessness by risking his life to make the long, dangerous journey to Rome to help Paul. Again, this is a big deal. We talked about this. It was dangerous. It was long. He'd have to make the trip back. And with this, Paul, really, he esteems him very highly. Notice the things that he says. He kind of piles on the praise in verse 25. He calls him a brother, meaning not that he was a biological brother, but that he was a brother in Christ. He was a fellow Christian. And uh, it keeps getting better. He says a fellow worker. So someone that they, they're working side by side. Remember Paul had said uh, the, to uh, the Philippians, you know, to, to work together, to strive together. This is someone that was doing this. And he also even calls him a fellow uh, soldier. I'm not a soldier, uh, probably in the literal sense that he had a you know, javelin and Roman armor, but that he was someone that was serving the Lord in, in spiritual work as a soldier for Christ. Uh, spiritually in that sense, doing things that were daring, doing things that were risking his life and of great importance, you know, engaging uh, the enemy in a, in a spiritual sense. And he says, in your messenger. And we says the messenger, and that's actually the same root word as, as apostle, because apostle literally means one sent with authority. And when he says this, he doesn't mean here apostle in the, the official apostle sense of uh, Paul the apostle, Peter, the 12 apostles, and, and, and things like that, but as one that he was sent uh, with a special mission from the Philippians to come to him as, as a messenger. And that he was also uh, then a minister to my need, that he was somebody, you know, we think of, Sometimes, uh, you know, pastors are called the minister, but really we're all supposed to be ministers because we're all supposed to be administering, you know, God's grace has helped other people. And so Epaphroditus was somebody that was administering, bringing this help to Paul in this time when he was in this really deep need while he is imprisoned. So again, think of what God, you know, called him to do, what he stepped forward to do. Imagine we get up here and we have an announcement for you and one of our missionaries is in really desperate need. They're 800 miles away and if they don't get some funds from us really quick, it's going to be very, very dire for them. And as a church, we're going to send them a large amount of money, uh, but we can't, for whatever reason, send it electronically. We can't mail a check. It needs to be delivered in person. And what if we said you can't use an airplane, you can't use a car? Uh, but you had, to, uh, you had to walk it there. It's going to take weeks. And you need to go ASAP as soon as possible. Who here is trustworthy and who here would volunteer to do this? Okay, that you could leave or go right now. Uh, mileage, uh, I think to New York is like 700 some. So if you're kind of gauging how far it would be to, to go. You know, even if I said you could drive a car to do this, I think most of us would say, oh, man, I kind of like to, but... I don't know about doing that right now. I got stuff going on. But Epaphras was able to, to do this. He was willing to, to go that distance. 
You know, these guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, these were not what you would call like casual Christians. Some people say, well, I'll be a Christian, but I'll be a casual Christian. You know, I don't want to interfere with my life too much. I don't want to have to do too much. Just what's the bare minimum that I need to do to get by? That was not the attitude that these guys had. They saw needs. They saw what needed to happen for the good of others, and they were supposed to carry that out. Now, let me tell you, the good news is, in all probability, right now, God is not calling you to walk 800 miles to meet a need. In all probability, right now, God is not calling you to get in a car and drive 800 miles to meet a need. But I'm sure there are needs out there. And if you put it in that perspective, what are the things, what is, where is God asking you to go? It might just be he's asking you to cross the street, talk to your neighbor, maybe to invite your neighbor to church. I'll tell you next week, the passage in uh, the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, this is one of my favorite passages to preach. It is such a clear gospel passage, and I'm, I'm just looking forward to it. If you have somebody that you can bring, okay, next week would be a great week to bring them to church so that the gospel is going to be clearly explained to them. So I encourage you to do that. Maybe he's asking you to cross the living room to engage with your, your wife, with your kids, family members. Maybe that's just the journey he's asking you to go on. Maybe all he's doing is asking you to, hey, just uh, your travels. Your travel I'm asking you to do is to bring your kids to Sunday school to help them to be discipled. Maybe he's asking you to, to travel out of your comfort zone to, to serve at church, to serve somewhere, to do something that maybe you wouldn't want to do. But as you shift your mindset from what, is, what do I want, what is good for me, you're realizing this is what I'll do. And remember, it's going to be the Lord working in and through you. He'll give you the strength. He'll give you the grace that you need to serve him and to do that. So Paphras took this long journey, and he almost got sick. Or he did get sick. He almost died in the process of this. Look at verses 26 and 27. And it says, uh, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So Epaphroditus, he got sick in the process of this and almost died. I mean, it was near death for him. And it seems likely that this may have happened like on the way during the travels and that he had to push on to do this. Uh, from Paul's comments, it seems like they are sure that the Philippians that they got news of this and they knew about it. Now, some people wondered, well, how could that happen? It's 800 miles away, and it's not like you can just, you're not sending carrier pigeons, you're not, uh, you know, posting, you know, your health alert on Facebook or something like that. Uh, but he's pretty sure that they heard. There's different theories. Uh, one theory is that maybe they got sick on the way, and at some point one of the, the traveling companions went back to tell the Philippians, you know, so they could know and they could be praying for him. Uh, that could be one thing, and, and who knows? I mean, these were commonly traveled roads. Maybe they met somebody going the other direction, that there was a Christian they knew, and they said, carry this message. Or maybe there were Christians they stayed with along the way, and they were able to relay a message back or have somebody else travel. There's a lot of different ways it could happen, but they're pretty sure that the Philippians knew about this. And we see then uh, that the amazing part of this, when you look at this, 
this is an amazing thing. It shows how selfless this guy Epaphroditus was because Paul doesn't write that Epaphroditus, in all this, he's close to death. He's like, you know, just a sliver away from death. But Paul doesn't write that Epaphroditus was distressed about himself. I mean, look at it again. What was he distressed about? Epaphroditus was distressed because of the anxiety that he knew this was causing to the Philippians back home, to his friends and family that were going to be just worried about him. Again, this is not a selfish servant of Jesus. This is a selfless servant of Jesus Christ. He was not milking his sickness for sympathy, okay? Uh, he, was, he cared about what other people think. So Epaphroditus, he showed his selflessness by being more distressed about others' anxiety than about his own peril and his own suffering. I mean, that shows his mindset. Now, the takeaway from this, okay, is not to, if you have something going on in your life, to never tell anyone, okay? Now, different things, you need to think who should know, and there's privacy, and we get that. But the takeaway isn't, you know, from this, well, I'm not going to tell people that, you know, I'm not sick. There's people in your life that need to know, because you also need to receive grace from them. And they can be praying for you, interceding with the Lord on your behalf. Okay, so don't take this the other way. But it is a mindset that shows how he cared about other people. And we see that Epaphroditus here, he got well because of God's mercy. That's what it said in this passage. It says... um, as we read, but God had mercy on him, not only in him, but on me also. So he did survive. And we don't know how long it took for him to recuperate, but now he was well enough that he could make the return trip. And by the time the Philippians are reading this, he had traveled the 800 miles all the way back to Philippi. And one thing that we need to pull from this as well is that Epaphroditus here, this amazing servant of God, selfless servant, a faithful guy, and he gets sick, really, really sick. We don't know what it was, but he almost died, and it could have gone that direction. Paul was worried that he was going to die. This shows that faithful Christians can and do get sick, okay? There's false teaching out there that says if you are a faithful Christian, that you will never get sick. These health and wealth teachers and preachers that, that say this, and that's a, that's a false teaching. It's dangerous teaching, and it puts the blame on you that if you get sick, well, you, if you had had more faith, because God intends every Christian to be, to be well, and he just he offers you healing, and you didn't take it. So it's, it's your faithlessness that you are sick. That doesn't make sense if we're looking at this passage. This Epaphras guy, he was a faithful, faithful guy, and he got sick to near death. And Paul wasn't just assuming, well, of course God's going to heal him. God had mercy on him and healed him. This means they realize this was not something that's just a guarantee that every Christian deserves this. There's healing in the atonement, so no Christian in this life should ever get sick. Well, if that was the case, every Christian would still be alive, okay? And that's not the case. But man, in America, in Africa, other places, this is some of the false teaching that we have been exporting uh, to some of these nations, and it puts, takes the focus off of Jesus and puts it on him as just a uh, magic genie to make you healthy and maybe wealthy and um, 
but that's not, it doesn't match what is, what is said here. God had mercy on him, he survived. This, well, who knows how God did this? It, but it was not necessarily a miraculous healing. God can do what he wants, so who knows, maybe. But, God, but Paul here gives God credit for this. And you know, most of the time, God works through natural means, through the healing power of the body that he designed, through medicine that he created and put in this world, through the skill that in his common grace he gave to doctors. And you know what? Even if God, if God heals you in that way, and if God responds to the prayer of you and people around you and heals you that way, and it's not a miraculous thing, you still praise God just the same. Because he's the one working in and through all of those things. Henry Ironside, the great preacher of a different generation, wrote this. He said, Let it be noted that the apostle did not consider he had any right to demand physical healing, even for so faithful a laborer as Epaphroditus. Paul recognized it simply as the mercy of God, not as that to which saints have a right. This is true divine healing. And let it be remembered that sickness may be as really from God as health. It is clear that Paul never held or taught, quote, healing in the atonement, unquote, and therefore the birthright privilege of all Christians. Nor do we ever read of him or his fellow laborers being miraculously healed. Paul himself, Trophimius, Timothy and Epaphroditus in Scripture all bear witness to the contrary. It's a really helpful implication. As we wrap this up, verse 28 and 29, verse 28, he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So he's saying it's right to honor such a man for this, hold him up, maybe an example to you, not for his glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. But it's interesting, he says, what does he mean when he says he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me? That's a little bit of a head-scratcher, isn't it? I mean, it seems, is he putting down the Philippians? Like, oh man, you guys didn't really totally come through, and uh, Epaphroditus here, he had to make up for your slack to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I think we need to think about it this way, that the Philippians, they, they collected this money, but what was the one thing that needed to be done? The money couldn't just stay in Philippi. It had to be brought to Paul. That's the part that was lacking, was that making it present to Paul, bringing it to the one that had the need, bringing it and making it personally present to the one that had the need. And that's what Epaphroditus did, delivering this gift and getting it to them. I think this is helpful, too, because there's a similar comment that Paul makes, Paul, again, in the book of uh, Colossians, also written around this time from prison, where he talks about Christ. And he says in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh, for himself, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, for the sake of his body, that is the church. Like, wait a second, what's he talking about here? What's lacking in Christ's affliction? Isn't the death of Christ enough? Don't we hold that it is sufficient? 
Was it that Jesus had to die? Um, you know, he did 90% of our salvation, but then what Paul in his suffering did what the other 10, what Jesus didn't do? But he uses uh, the same basic language here, filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. But I think if we think of Epaphroditus and what he did, and we apply that to what Paul and what he was doing with his life, it, you see Scripture interpreting Scripture here. There's nothing lacking in Christ's sufficient death, but just as Epaphroditus needed to bring the gift to Paul, so also Paul and we too, we need to bring the gift to those who need it. That we need to go on self to, to deliver it, to make it personal, to make it present to them. That we complete what is lacking by making the grace of Christ present with those that need it. I mean, Christ has died, is sufficient Savior, that's all. But when we tell people about Christ, when we evangelize, when we as ambassadors implore them to come to Christ, we are, we are trying to bring them the gift that we need to give it to them, God working in and through you to do this. When you minister grace and help to other people in their life, you are personally bringing the, the grace of God to them in their life that you're completing this final step of actually connecting with them, making it personal, making it present to them. And we may need to suffer to do this. Paul did, Epaphroditus did. So another way to say this, we complete what is lacking by, by suffering to make the grace of Christ personally present to those who need it. Are you willing to do this? This will require selflessness. But we think of the selfless one that we are serving, the ultimate selfless one. Okay, Epaphroditus, he nearly died in order to do this, but Jesus actually died. He actually died a horrible death for my salvation, for your salvation. Or if you're not saved for the salvation he is offering to you that we are trying to personally bring to you and to make present to you so that you can grab onto it and be saved yourself. Mark 10, 24, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So to sum up this whole message, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they were selfless servants of the ultimate selfless servant. We should follow their example. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you Lord, we thank you for the love that you've poured out on us and grace means we do not deserve this. We think of our Lord and Savior, our treasure, Jesus Christ, and no matter how far we could possibly go to serve you, is not as far as he went coming down from glory on high to this earth all the way up to the cross for our salvation. Let us have his mindset. Let us have his attitude. And let us be people that put others in the interests of Christ first. Work your grace in our life so that we would do that for the glory of Jesus and the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.